Thank you again for listening to our podcast today. Thank you so much for your support. We worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. here at St. John's Lutheran Church in the heart of downtown Martinsburg, West Virginia. Know that you're always welcome to our table and to our worship. God bless. And we hope you enjoy today's message. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. God has been glorified, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. Little children, I am only with you a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. you be seen by our children up. So I kind of want to tell you this funny story that um, Aaron, our sexton, uh, he's the one who puts the hymn title out front. And uh, this was supposed to be a pulpit swap day. You were supposed to get Pastor Diane today. And I was supposed to be down in Charlestown. And we didn't think it was kosher too cool for her to have to do all the painting work and me get to stay home. So... <laughs> So there wasn't a sermon title, and so Aaron texted me, and I had no idea what the sermon title was going to be, because I, I, when I go down there, I usually don't think of one, and so I had to come up with one quick, so I quickly Google the text for this week, and I'm reading through them, and I'm like, hey, you're saved, and I sent that back to Aaron, and his response back was, I sure hope so. <laughs> it, but be honest with me for a second, I, I've been doing ordained ministry for seven years now, I started seminary 11 years ago this August. I have grown up in the church being a pastor's kid. I met countless, countless individuals who believe that there is no possible way that God could ever bring them salvation, could ever love them. And what's even more terrifying to me is that many of them are Lutheran. You know, we're the ones who promoted, have promoted since 1530 when the Augsburg Confession was presented at the Diet of Augsburg. That very famous article that says, Justification by grace through faith. This is who we are. Yet so many question their standing before God in our own midst, in our own ranks. And I see it in the most obvious of ways when someone tells me that flat out that God does not love them or can never love them. Or in the most minuscule ways when someone says to me, Oh, Pastor, your prayers reach God faster than mine do. Let me, let me set the record straight with you all. If I was supposed to get a special phone line in with God when I was ordained, they never installed it. I'm still waiting on it. There are a lot of people out there who do not feel as though they are worthy of salvation or worthy of God's time. And that is something that we as a church should deal with, that we need to deal with, that we can deal with. We can, we can preach better theology. We can teach better understandings of the Bible, of God's love. But this will never go away. I'm afraid, because Satan loves this horrible theology. I truly believe it's the work of Satan when a believer lies in fear of ter- or terror of God. Luther says in the small catechism that we are to fear and love God. He didn't say anything about hiding from God. You know, God didn't destroy Adam and Eve in the garden when they ate the forbidden fruit. God isn't going to destroy you because you're not perfect either. So we have this problem with people on the inside not feeling worthy of God's love. 
we also have a similar problem today that the early church was dealing with as well. Insiders afraid to let outsiders in. In the case of the early church, there was a great divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And we see this divide very clearly in Paul's letters. Paul writes about this a great deal. Paul felt that his mission from God was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. While a lot of the churches and a lot of people in the church felt that that was misguided. The gospels also are very subtle but very, have very powerful ways to stretch their audience's perception of, of God's new reality. Matthew's gospel is probably the best at it. We see this in the very second or third chapter, third, second, the story of the Magi, I think it's in the second chapter. That was back in the 50s. My brain is completely fried from then. We see this when the Magi, these Gentile palm readers, they get and understand who Jesus is and travels great distance. They travel for years just to simply bow down and worship Jesus. They, the Gentiles, get Jesus. They understand who Jesus is while the insiders, the Jewish king Herod, tries to kill him after he learns Jesus' true identity. Matthew's community, we believe, was more Jewish than Luke's community, mainly because Matthew has many more of these types of stories, these Gentile stories, than Luke does. But Luke, the writer of Acts as well, does deal with the great Jewish-Gentile divide in the church. And we see that in our very first lesson that Drew read to us this day from the book of Acts. We first must remember when reading this story is that Peter had this vision somewhere around the year 30 CE, give or take five years around there. Luke, though, wrote the book of Acts around 85 CE. We're talking about 50 years passing between Peter having this vision and Luke putting it down on paper on papyrus. The way the scripture sounds, verse 18 says, When they heard this, they were silenced, and they, and they prayed to God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles repentance that leads to eternal life. One could read this and assume that the issue seems to be closed. The church has moved on and is looking at other things. But we know from other historical documents that this is not a closed issue. It's not as simple as Luke makes it out to believe. I believe Luke is using a literary device here to say to his church that, look, back then, this was not an issue. Why are you still making this an issue today? So the phrase, why, do you, why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them, was probably a question that many were asking Luke, and less a question of inquiry, and more of a statement of judgment and condemnation on Luke and Peter's part. What gives you the right to go and break our laws, break our customs, and eat with those people. And Peter's in a bit of hot water here. He's called before the apostles and the believers in Judea. It would be the same way if I, if I did something and angered a lot of people in the church and all the churches from, Lutheran churches from this area and all the parishioners came together in here and, and questioned my, what was I doing, something that I've done. Peter's credentials, his apostolic membership is being called into question, the one who was the first to make the confession of who Jesus was in Luke 9, chapter 20, when he said, you are the Messiah. When all the others were too afraid to answer, when all the others were too confused to answer, Peter was the one who was willing to take a chance and be wrong. 
And now he stands before the church. Stands before the others. And he is being questioned. Accused of preaching a message counter to what Jesus preached. Of preaching heresy. But Peter, and us as well, we know the background. We know the whole story. We know that he is justified in ministering to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. In chapter 10, we hear in much more detail the events that Luke is describing again here in chapter 11. We hear Peter's vision to eat unclean animals and to baptize a Roman official was justified and in fact deemed necessary by the Holy Spirit. God told Peter to do this. But that doesn't mean Peter was okay with this new avenue of ministry. In his vision, he tells the Lord, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter knows the law. He knows what he was taught since a child. You do not eat certain animals. But yet this voice from heaven is telling him to ignore those laws, to ignore those customs, to ignore what he knows to be true, to get up, kill, and eat. And immediately after this vision, he sees three men who are coming for him to bring him to an unnamed Gentile high up in the Roman government. And we're privy to more of this information at him, but nobody on the council knows the identity of this man who sent for people, Peter. Which is probably good because judging from the tone of this meeting, the council probably would have lost their minds knowing that Peter baptized a high member in the Roman government and his entire family and all his servants. Probably wouldn't have gone over real well. So Peter leaves that detail out. But Peter tells him that he went with the men, even though they were Gentiles, and he was amazed to find a man and his family, a Gentile man and his family, ready to hear the word of God. And before he could even prepare them for baptism, by putting them through the the baptism class that we do and all that, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it did on those gathered in the upper room on Pentecost. It was at that moment... Peter realized God wanted the church to move in a different direction. And that the gospel message was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Brothers and sisters, while there might not be a Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian divide in our church today, we still find ways to separate us, right? Martin Luther King once said that the most segregated hour of the week was at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. It was not too long ago that there were signs in bathrooms that said whites only or colors only. The same was true for restaurants, water fountains, schools, buses. And if it isn't races divides us, there are plenty of other things out there that do divide us. Peter was given a sign from God to note to know that God is signaling a new era for the church and its work and ministry. God showed Peter a vision. What sign is God showing us this day? Where is God leading us? What vision have you seen? For we're a community that welcomes, that prays, that worries, who calls you up when you haven't been to church for a while. We are a community that cares and we need to look at the barriers that we have placed around ourselves, whether they be physical or perceived. We need to find ways to take them down. To be brave like Peter and describe a new vision that God has set up this has for the church. If it only takes a sign, if it only takes a vision for the church to change directions, then let that sign be of love and of service to our brothers and sisters. 
As Jesus says in the gospel, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the vision that God has for us, for the church this day, my brothers and sisters. A world where we are not identified by the types of clothes we wear, by our race, by our class, by our gender, by whether we grew up in Baltimore or whether we grew up in the hills of Appalachia. But we are judged by the baptismal cloth that we were given when Christ clothed you with the power from the Most High in your baptism. This love soap vision is a good vision, but it's a hard vision for our world and even for us to get behind. Especially when it's so easy to just put up signs and put up divisions that do not unite but divides us. If we don't start with love, nobody else will. If we don't start tearing down these barriers that divide us, nobody else will. As Christians, my brothers and sisters, let us be the ones who set the bar for the rest of the world, for the rest of society, for, the, for our community, for what is acceptable, and dare others to be like us.